The following program is brought to you by Taste Bud Entertainment. Welcome to two hours of delicious conversation with Chef Jamie Gwynn. Dish with celebrity chefs, cookbook authors, and food experts, and gain inspirational ideas. You'll learn kitchen wisdom, wine education, and culinary trends, and eat and drink like you've never done before. Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwynn starts now. Well, good morning, food lovers. Another delicious Sunday here in Southern California and heard worldwide. Chef Jamie Gwen, along with Lana in your radio. This is your cooking school on the radio, guaranteeing that you can be a better cook in 2013. This is where the most passionate food and wine lovers live. Food enthusiasts rejoice. Emeril Lagasse coming up in your radio with the Southern California exclusive. So stay tuned. Good morning to you, Lana. Good morning. We're really excited about a great hour of radio, so don't touch your dial. We've got quick recipes, prep advice, great ideas we guarantee will make you hungry. And we're always serving up seconds at chefjamie.com. This is cooking and entertaining from a chef's point of view. Why do you cook? I cook because it lets me create things that I can see and hear other people enjoying. I call it culinary gratification, and that's Mm -hmm. what I love about it. We do love to cook and love to eat. So if you like to do either or both, then I like to say we can definitely be friends. Coming up, as I mentioned, Emeril Lagasse. He's going to dish on his new cooking channel television show. Also, what it was like to sit at the judges' table for Top Chef, some behind-the-scenes scoop and also his most recent humanitarian offer from uh, uh, honor rather excuse me from James Beard uh, coming up the honorable Emeril Lagasse also you're going to hear from the Pinot Noir winemaker that is making waves with Miomi and Bell Gloss he is Joe Wagner and he is one of the up-and-coming young and trendy winemakers you're going to want to hear from him he's really quite extraordinary and also have you ever looked deep into open tables or wondered why everyone else got the best reservation in the restaurant you wanted to dine at? Well, we're actually going to open the door to your favorite restaurant. Scott Jample is coming up with uh, Open Table Scoop. And then you'll also hear from Stephen Khalil coming up in just a couple of minutes. He's the executive chef and research developer for, yes, Frito-Lay. And if you want to do yourself a flavor, you'll stay tuned because you've seen Eva Longoria and Michael Simon talk about the next big potato chip. Well, you can weigh in and you can even win a million bucks. How cool would it be to be the executive chef for potato chip research? Mm. That sounds like a tasty job. Fun fun job. Yeah, definitely so. We're supercharging your culinary knowledge this morning with our technique of the week. By the way, it's posted at chefjamie.com and it's all about how to to cook a whole fish. There are pictures and a tutorial to guide you through. Um, so be sure to check it out. We bought a Branzino, Lana and I, and wait till you see all that was left. Just the bones. Guaranteed to be a successful recipe. And so simple. <laughs> and so easy. Exactly. Citrus and garlic and white wine and just the simple flavor of fennel pollen to ignite that beautiful, just 
oceany, wonderful, delicious, briny, subtle, sweet fish. Absolutely delicious. And then Passover coming up, by the way, uh, followed Mm -hmm. by Easter, of course. Uh, March 25th marks the first night of Passover, Sunday, Easter Sunday, the 31st. But as we plan for our Passover menus, Mm. I hope that you have your Passover potato kugel on first night's menu. Yes, most definitely. It's with fried shallots and it's really moist on the inside and crispy on the outside. Mm. Love it. Can't Mm. wait. You'll find everything you need to plan your Passover menu, a Passover guide, including my Passover matzah bark, which is everybody's favorite. It's my take on candy brittle made with matzah that's pretty darn delicious, I must say. Check it out at chefjamie.com. We're inviting you to join us coming up one of our favorite events of the year, Chalk Follies. We support and congratulate our dear friend Gloria Zigner, who in its 16th year has raised over $6 million to support Chalk Hospital. The Chalk Follies is coming up, so please go to their website so that you can buy tickets. It's chalk.org forward slash chalk follies. We Hope to see you there. It is a great show and great talent by incredible volunteers. So don't miss it. Also, yesterday, in fact, um, we had an opportunity to hear from a gentleman who I find extraordinarily fascinating, quite a genius. Uh, The New Yorker writer Adam Gopnik was here in Southern California, and he's written a book with the, uh, I think, extraordinary reflection of his life in food and uh, his good friends, uh, (laughs) Fergus Henderson, Farron Adria, a few big names. He's written a book about the table coming first and really, uh, I think with great wit and eloquence, he's talking about modern life and culture and we're going to share his knowledge with you coming up on the radio and I'm really excited about it. He was quite fabulous. Lana, thank you for always taking me to great cultural things. And as promised, uh, we hope that you will stay tuned. Emeril Lagasse coming up in just a bit. Oh, don't forget, there's still room to cruise with us. We'll tell you all about it. Congratulations to our cruise partner, Oceana Cruises, The marina was just rated the best food at sea in this month's Condé Nast Traveler's Reader's Poll, and we hope you'll come cruise with us to the Baltics coming up this September. I caught up with Chef Stephen Khalil earlier this week to dish on, yes, everyone's favorite, America's favorite snack food. Take a listen. Potato chips are no doubt among the world's most beloved snack foods. They're mine too, and you may not know it, but coming up on March 14th, it's actually National Potato Chip Day. Of course, I think everyone has their favorite flavor, whether it be plain or sour cream and onion or barbecue. Well, what do you think about some of the newer flavors, like chicken and waffles or cheesy garlic bread or even sriracha? You might just see them on supermarket shelves soon. With us to talk about the evolution of the potato chip and how these new flavors come about is executive research chef for Frito-Lay, Stephen Khalil. Hi, Chef. Good morning. Good morning, Chef. How are you today? (laughs) Doing well, and you? Very well, thank you. Good, I'm glad. Okay, now you have a great contest going on, and we'll get to it, but start out, if you would, tell us about the history of potato chips and why you think Americans are so in love with the crunch. Well, you know, you can't not love the crunch of a Lay's potato chip. It's been an American classic for 75 years when Herman Lay introduced them to the States, but the history of the chip goes way back to even Thomas Jefferson. I'm not sure if you knew this. Thomas Jefferson was an ambassador to France in the mid-1800s, and he brought back a traditional French fried potato recipe, which is 
thick slices of potatoes that are fried, and you can skewer them with a fork. Well, back then, there was a chef at a Moon Lake Lodge in Saratoga, New York. His name was George Crumb, and he served these French fried potatoes, but one of the customers wanted them crispier. So he made them thinner, and still the customer sent them back, and he wanted them even crispier. So finally, he frustrated. George Crumb sliced them very thin and made them too crispy to be able to be picked up with a fork, but the guest was delighted, and they became so famous that he opened his own restaurant and featured them. But oh, for, see. for us, the history starts back 75 years ago with Herman Lane. I love it. And see, customer service is everything, and we have George to thank for the potato chip phenomenon. Um, what kind of trends do you see in flavor preferences? Because I know the original potato chip uh, was particularly plain and still uh, beloved by many. I think there's something to be said for just the simple Frito-Lay chip. But the flavor profile has changed significantly over the years. Potato chip lovers are starting to move towards more complex flavors that mimic real food. I, and I, I sort of equate this to television. When television first came out, it was black and white. So we had simply salt-seasoned potato chips. Then when we introduced color television, it's like introducing flavor chips. But they were simple flavors. Barbecue, sour cream and onion, salt and vinegar. But then we get into high-definition television, and that's what we're doing with flavors and lays. It's high-definition flavors with layers of flavors that are sequenced to mimic the experience of eating the real food product. Oh, that is an wow. incredible analogy. I just love it. Okay, so take us to the high-def place, Chef, if you would. How do you work in your Lay's Research Kitchen to create a new flavor, to create those levels of flavor like you or I would traditionally in a sauté pan? The three finalists from the 3.8 million submissions are, as you mentioned, sriracha, cheesy garlic bread, and chicken and waffles. Did you say 3.8 million submissions? That's right. We had 3.8 million submissions, and these are the three finalists. What we did is we got the chefs together in our Frito-Lay Flavor Kitchen, and we took the flavor concept and created the real food product that delivers on that concept. So we made cheesy garlic bread with a French baguette and different types of cheeses, and even layering the garlic, raw garlic and sweet roasted garlic and toasting it just right to get the right toast points. And the chicken and waffles, we made the best fried chicken we could make and the most flavorful waffles and the right type of syrup. And then the sriracha, we made sort of a sriracha dipping sauce. So it was easier on the palate but still delivering that spice that you get from the sriracha hot sauce. Then we evaluate what is making those flavors so delicious. And we design a brief for our seasoning scientists so they can deliver the same flavor experience on our chips. That's pretty fascinating. So we know that Americans love chicken and waffles, sriracha, all these, you know, very fabulous and somewhat current flavors. I mean, some of them trend-setting. We know sriracha, one of the hottest hot sauces out there. But chicken and waffles, a throwback to comfort food. I know in your research, though, that around the world there are other flavor profiles. There is a Cajun squirrel and a lobster hot plate lays chip somewhere, isn't there? Yes, well, the Cajun Squirrel was one of the finalists in the U.K., but the overall winner wound up being Builder's Breakfast, which tastes like a full breakfast on a chip. And what is composed in that flavor profile? A traditional U.K. breakfast, British breakfast, would be eggs, bangers, sausage, and, believe it or not, baked beans. <laughs> and how do they taste? Tastes great. 
the consumers loved it and the fans voted for it. So it was a top winner. That's pretty cool. So this Duessa Flavor Contest led by Lay's was done around the world. I'd love to know what the judging criteria was. Do you have a panel of absolutely perfect palates when it comes to potato chips who actually judges the flavor profile? Yes. I was fortunate enough to be one of the judges on the panel, along with flavor enthusiast and actress Eva Longoria, along with Food Network Iron Chef Michael Simon. And the criteria was based upon the submissions, originality, creativity, simplicity, straightforwardness, and the ability to be a potentially great-tasting chip. So they um, had to submit three ingredients, the flavor name and the inspiration behind the flavor. We used that judging criteria to come up with the final three flavors, Tyler submitted Sriracha. Tyler's a young college student living in a frat house. Karen has a family. She submitted cheesy garlic bread, something they eat at their favorite pizza restaurant. And Christina submitted chicken and waffles because she watches her nephew go to town on chicken and waffles, and he's so protective of it, he won't let anybody else share it. So she thought that would be a great idea. And when will we know the results as we walk down the snack food aisle in our favorite supermarket? When can we expect to see the new flavors from Lay's? You should be seeing the new flavors now. All three flavors should be in the stores. And then once you've tasted them, you can go to our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Lay's, and you can vote for your favorite. Voting is open until May 4th. And the person who submitted the winning recipe will get a million dollars or 1% of the net revenue, whichever is more. So soon after May 4th, you'll know who the winner is. Seeing that we're doing this interview right now, Stephen, does that make Lana and I ineligible to win? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're a little late for the game on this one. Yeah, but we're going to weigh in next time, I have to tell (laughs) you. Absolutely. We look forward to that. Okay, so May 4th, the deadline, so that you two can weigh in on the next best flavor for Lay's. You go to Facebook.com forward slash Lay's. Just to be clear, you're voting for your favorite of the three finalists that are in the stores now okay very good we will do so and and those include the chicken and waffles yes the sriracha yes and the cheesy garlic bread absolutely okay we've got it all now we know under your umbrella of great duties as the certified executive research chef for pepsico and frito-lay you run the cheetos empire too and i have to admit um a a great splurge and that is i never met anybody who doesn't love a cheeto Right. Yeah. So we understand that there is actually a new mix up. It sounds like a hot, fabulous mess. Cheetos is debuting two new bags of mixed flavors. And I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about them. Well, we worked on them and we consumer tested them and they they yielded the final two mixes that are in the market. Now you can go and have them. They deliver that multi-sensory experience. So it's not just the simple flavor of a Cheetos and the texture of a Cheetos that you got in the past. We got the textures mixed up, we got the flavors mixed up, and hopefully we're delivering a multi-dynamic sensorial experience. Uh, Much like what I was talking about, having real flavors on the chip. Yeah, sure. But working for Cheetos is absolutely a ball. Everybody loves Cheetos. I know of some some women who buy Cheetos just for themselves and keep it in the um, 
keep it in the closet, and then they buy the Cheetos that the family can eat. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody's sharing their Cheetos. I love that potato chips from Lay's have become a true sensory experience, and you no longer have to choose between puffed or crunch or hot or mellow. Look for the mix-ups from Cheetos and do weigh in so that you can contribute your culinary opinion to the upcoming uh, Lay's contest winners, right? Determine Mm -hmm. and weigh in to judge your own favorite flavor. Do us a flavor is the contest running. You have until May 4th to go online. Facebook.com forward slash Lay's and vote for your chicken and waffles, your garlic bread, or your sriracha. And Chef, we look forward to walking the supermarket dials and definitely seeing new flavors as they continue to build from your kitchen. Thank you for sharing your tremendous passion. Thank you, Chef. Thank you for having me on. It's been delightful. It was a pleasure. Thank you. As the delicious conversation continues, you heard it here. From snack foods to the truly elegant and extraordinary, Chef Jamie Gwen, along with Lana in your radio, making every day more delicious. We'll be right back. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen, along with Lana in your radio. I am proud to say this gentleman is truly a girl's finest mentor. He is the gentleman that has redefined what it is to be a modern chef, the restaurateur and culinary entrepreneur, the television master, Emeril Lagasse. And I'm always proud when he joins us here in your radio, and he's back once again. Good morning, Emeril. So glad to have you back on the radio. Thank you so much, Chef Jamie. I appreciate it. And Lana, thank you so much for having me back on. How have you guys been? We've been good. Thank you. We're working hard, and you too. Absolutely. (laughs) Always something new and fabulous. The new show on the Cooking Channel, we love your new series called Emeralds Florida, which is really a bird's-eye view into the state, into the fabulous food, into the fishing. Tell everybody about it. Absolutely, Chef Jamie. Let me tell you, I'm thrilled to be back on uh, this new show, a lot of fun. It's a bird's eye view, as you said, of the entire state. It's from the Panhandle all the way down to the Keys. A lot of people have this image of, of Florida that they think, well, okay, there's a lot of retired people, and okay, there's theme parks, <laughs> and of course, the, you know, there's Miami, and they don't really realize how much heaven is really, really here. And so, there's cooking in every show, but it's not just cooking. It's places. It's faces. It's mom-and-pop farms, it's ranch, it's agriculture, it's it's really just amazing. It's just an amazing show. The more that I keep doing this, and, and you and I have known each other, three of us, for a long time, you know that the more that I kind of go and try to unveil, the more that I keep finding. And it's really just, it's very touching. As an example, in the Panhandle area, there's a husband and wife team that's called Mac Farms, and you start out one of the shows there with one of the chefs from a, a local restaurant. And then all of a sudden, we, what we've harvested, we're, we're back at his restaurant and we're cooking. And, and then we move on to a, you know another great restaurant where the chef turns us on to preparations of different fish that are coming out of the Gulf of Mexico. Hmm. Or it could be like, you know, we were down in, the, in Uber City and to go to this place that's been, I think it's close to 100 years old, who would have thunk a restaurant that old in the state of Florida? But this restaurant called the Columbia Restaurant with all this Spanish heritage and fused with old world and new world, it's been a really great journey so far. 
That's really fabulous. I love that as you turn over rocks, you find so many, like you said, new and extraordinary people and triumphs and um, all of their passions become so much more aware to the world. And I love that you've done that. And you've done it, you know, almost state by state, although we'd love to get you here on our coast, you know, Uh, but (laughs) through New Orleans and um, Las Vegas with all of your restaurants and now through Florida. I think it really is a wonderful way that um, these great foodies Mm -hmm. have been brought exposure through your passion of spreading the gospel, really. Well, Emerald, when I think Florida, I think grouper. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And we actually go to a few places in a couple of different shows because there's a lot of claim to fame who who has the best fried grouper sandwich. And so we've been to a few places to go check that out. And then there are the red shrimp, and then, mm-hmm. you know, then they're, they're blessed with, with so much great seafood. Right now in the south of Florida, there's yellowtail grouper, which is really, really special uh, that's happening. And, and the panhandle with snapper season and trigger fish, and it's really amazing. And I was in the Palm Beach area. Uh, a few weeks ago, and I went to a place. They said, well, you need to check out this place called Swank Farms. And I'm like, Swank Farms? I think I know this place. And basically, in my Orlando restaurant, which, as you ladies know, I've been there for almost 15 years in Orlando with Emeralds Orlando and Chop Chop, I know that I've gotten some produce for them. So long story short, I went to the farm, and it was a a very talented local chef uh, who runs a restaurant, owns a restaurant called Bukan, who was met me there. And so it, well, I'm looking around, I'm like, this is supposed to be like a little half acre gem. And here it is, this like amazing, amazing acreage where they're growing every kind of passable lettuce and herb that you can think of. And then on the other side, every kind of vegetable that you can uh, imagine. How fabulous. And, and, yeah, and it's all growing. And, and here we are in, in February and, you know, there's eggplant hanging and, you know, baby Brussels sprouts, and I could keep going on and on. So we begin harvesting the chef and I, and then we go back to his restaurant and we, you know, cook a dish and we're trying to explain to people how to do this, et cetera, et cetera. And it's just amazing to see not only the variety, but how much talent is really here. Mm-hmm. Because other than Miami, it's really not been known, Orlando a little bit. There's some amazing, amazing talent going on in in the state. I think it's wonderful you're highlighting the Sunshine State. I happen to love lots of different areas of Florida, and it's really... I think a beautiful example, like you said, of the talent, but of also the top restaurants, the resorts, you share recipes. It's called Emeralds Florida. Don't miss it. It's on the cooking channel. And then we just happened to see the finale of Top Chef, Emerald. Yeah, and, what a blast. Oh, that had to be. Tell us what it was like. I watched Kristen win. and. Yep. I think both of those women were extraordinary and still are, of course, extraordinary culinary talents. And as a woman in the industry, I was very glad to see after 10 seasons that Top Chef chose its second woman as the winner. But what was it like to sit in that seat? And what were those two snapper dishes like side by side? I'll tell you, Chef Jamie and Alana, that, you know, I did a good bit of season nine. And, of course, season seven, when they were in New Orleans, I, I, I did a couple of things for their finale. But being a part of the entire season this year, it's been just an amazing evolution is what I can say. From the last bit when 21 finalists were chosen, and then to see it unravel week after week, 
week after week. And I have to tell you, Kristen, who one is an amazing talent, and so is Brooke. I mean, I've had the pleasure of eating a lot of Brooke's food in, in Los Angeles, and very, very talented chef, and a lot of passion. And then it was it was very sad for me to see Sheldon getting disqualified. But the buildup of that, and seeing week by week how much better, how much they were growing week by week, how better their food was getting. And not that it was bad from the start, but just to see it building up and, and going to the finale was really just an amazing experience. It's interesting. Competition elevates you, Chef, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, I, absolutely. And and yet, the great thing about Top Chef and why I love doing Top Chef, it's very simple. It's real. There's no make-believe. I mean, they're mm. given these challenges that are incredible, and they have to cook, and and there's no way out of it. I mean, they just they got to cook their way out of a paper bag here, or they're done. And then to have experienced people in the industry, you know, whether it's Tom or Wolfgang, to be able to taste the food and to be able to give them creative comments has just been amazing. I was very very impressed with Kristen. She took one for the team when she got eliminated. And she fought her way back. And uh, after five or six times fighting her way back, she ended up getting a spot uh, with the last show when uh, they had the cook-off at Kraft. And then the build-up of the finale, they had no idea that this was going to be a live audience. So when they chose their sous chefs from the show and they were given the challenge, they had no idea. When they walked out and to see their expressions of, like, holy yeah, you know that. <laughs> I mean, uh, I have to now. I've got to cook in front of a live audience, mm-hmm. and then I, I think they didn't play a lot of it last night up, but they each had to produce sixty plates. So there were a hundred twenty people behind the judges' table, and so sixty plates from one chef, sixty plates from another chef for those hundred and twenty guests that were just in that area. They had to cook for. So could you imagine that? I I thought about that under pressure. I thought about that, Chef. When I saw all the plates laid out on the tables, I realized that they were cooking for a good majority of that live audience, not just this elite panel of judges. Lana, can you imagine Emeril Lagasse, Wolfgang Puck, Tom Colicchio, and then throw Ooh. another handful of, you know, <laughs> supplemental big names in. And then as they opened the doors and you saw this live audience, that you're right, Chef, that was not just another challenge. Right. It was, I, I thought, quite incredible. And congratulations to Kristen. I loved watching you judge, Emeril. I thought it was... Like you said, what the show was to you, a very honest depiction of a culinary competition. I thought it was a very honest and wonderful example of who and what you are. And everybody knows that I am very proud to have had a long history with you. He is Emeril Lagasse, the chef proprietor of 12 restaurants across the country, the best-selling author of 15 cookbooks. But I will tell you personally, despite the incredible success, you are devoted as ever to the chefs across the country, those that work with you and for you, uh, the industry, the farmers, the fishermen, and making all of it come together to better the food business day after day after day. And you never cease to amaze me. I know we have about a minute or so left here, Chef. We'd like to congratulate you on being named the 2013 James Beard Foundation Humanitarian of the Year. 
Thank you very much. Well-deserved. We know that you will be honored in May, and we intend to be there. But just leave us with your next plan of efforts for the Emeril Lagasse Foundation. Well, we're working on that now. We just finalized the dates. will be November 8th and 9th this year. I'll be there, too. Now, the 8th <laughs> being uh, Boudin and Beer, yes, which has really turned out to be just an incredible in, in only completing our second year and now going into our third year. Mm. And then Carnival de Ven, we're getting ready to celebrate our 10-year anniversary anniversary next year. Mm. So this is a really special year. We're putting all the pieces and parts together. I'll have to come back on your show in a short bit and, and tell you uh, exactly what that lineup will be. But okay. it's it, it, I promise it's going to be another sensational weekend. And all of those proceeds go to the foundation and all of those proceeds, as you know, go to children organizations that we're in, involved with. So incredible. It's been a lot of fun, and it's, and it's hard to believe that we're getting close to our 10-year anniversary. Well, congratulations to you. Over $5.3 million dedicated to and donated, granted, to children's education and culinary arts from the Emerald Lagasse Foundation. We are so glad to have a few minutes of a very special time with you, Chef. Thank you. Thank you for Thanks bringing so us much, up ladies. to date. We'll talk to you and see you soon, we hope. Absolutely. And we send you Thank lots you so of love. Thank you so much for having us. Thank, Thank you. you. Okay. Talk to you Thank soon, you. Chef. Have a great day. Take care. Bye-bye. He is Emeril Lagasse, and you heard him here, Chef Jamie Gwen, along with Lana. I have culinary goosebumps. I love those. I am speechless. He still gives Mm. me them. Mm -hmm. As the delicious conversation continues right after this, don't touch your dial. We'll be right back. Welcome back. It's food and wine, and it's divine. Chef Jamie Gwen, along with Lana, in your radio. This is what we call the Cork Report, bringing you the best from the vineyards across the country. You heard from Chelsea Prince some weeks back and her new book, Rock and Vine, The Next Generation Changemakers in America's Wine Country. And we mentioned and teased a bit that this gentleman was coming on the radio, and I am absolutely delighted. This is one of those winemakers who's creating and continuing to create uh, a legendary name for himself, and the family name continues. The Wagner family has farmed the soils of Napa Valley since the 1880s, and for five generations, their family has lived and loved Napa. They are the Wagner family of wine. Chuck Wagner, his father, continues to direct the world-renowned Cabernet program at Camus Vineyards in Napa Valley, and Joe is making fine Pinot Noir under the Belle Gloss label in the coastal areas of California, and a beautiful Chardonnay, too. Joe Wagner is a fifth-generation Napa Valley winemaker, and he is a viticulturist. And stylistically, his wines are produced from very ripe grapes, and his Pinot Noirs are beautiful. He produces two superlative Pinots, and once you taste them, you will understand his popularity. He joins us live this morning, and he is Joe Wagner. Good morning to you, Joe. Good morning, Jamie. Thank you for having me. Yes, a pleasure. Congratulations on all of your continued success. Um, I think it's really fascinating to see how many generations of knowledge there are in your families. And it being passed down generation after generation, I think, is such a testament to the wines themselves. As I mentioned, you are all about peak ripeness. And I would love for you to explain your wine style to my listeners. Absolutely, yeah. It's uh... You know, it's a, it's a beauty a beauty to grow here in California. It's, you know, we're blessed with sun, and uh, had it not been for being on the Pacific Coast, we'd be nothing more than a desert without any water. So, um, really, it's it's a great climate to grow grapes in, and uh, we are blessed with the opportunity to get 
what I consider peak ripeness, which generally um, is, is a little a little more than just your standard of looking at sugars. Mm-hmm. I like to look at the physiological characteristics of the grapes. I think that's our main precursor in harvesting. And so when we go out in the field and we're looking at a block that may be close to harvest, we're looking at the grapes, we're looking at uh, the vine health, we're looking for a little of what we call senescence, which is a bit of yellowing in the canopy. That lets us know that the, the vine is you know, getting ready for winter, it's starting to look at fall and think it's, it's time to start shutting down. We want to see um, brown lignified wood from that year's growth. And then most importantly, when we look at the grapes, we want hard brown seeds, we want a little bit of dimpling, that, that'd be considered a little bit of dehydration, and then of course the flavors and, uh, and balance of acidity. So when it comes down to it, the reason we want those things is concentration from a little bit of dimpling. You get an intense, I think, uh, structure or just viscosity in the wine mm-hmm. and a bit more color. And then, of course, with the seeds, uh, those being a main point, we want to make sure that those don't uh, impart any character into the wine. If they're green and fleshy, you're going to get a really coarse and uh, aggressive tannin, and that's something we'd really try to mitigate. And so we're, we're really focusing overall on skin tannin and trying to mitigate the seed tannin. And that's really what I would say peak ripeness is all about for us. I would like to speak about, if you would, the two different Pinot Noirs that you produce. Your um, Belle Gloss is a testament to your grandmother, I know, a tribute to her, right? And it is 100% Pinot Noir. Interestingly enough, it has that very ripe factor when it comes to the grapes and it is a beautiful drinking Pinot Noir. I found it exceptionally food friendly as well. The Belle Gloss wines, uh, they are 100% Pinot Noir from those singular vineyards and we have three vineyards currently, uh, soon to be four actually, and each of them are very broadly spread throughout the coast of California from Sonoma County to Monterey County to Santa Barbara County. And uh, they're all extremely unique. And Pinot Noir, the most beautiful thing about it is that it really emulates where it's grown. So if you take something from Sonoma and compare it to Santa Maria, you're going to have very different characters. And that's what we're trying to exemplify with the Belle Gloss Vineyard Designate Wine. Talk about the 2011 vintage of your Belle Gloss. 2011, I, I loved the vintage. You know, you probably have heard that it was a fairly difficult vintage in yes. California. Yes. It, it was for Cab, the late season varietals. Um, went through a few rains, but Pinot Noir, um, in a vintage like that, where you have a very cool spring, cool summer, and even cool fall, it thrives in that climate. We're growing in the coastal areas because we're trying to get that hang time, and that's where you get that physiological ripeness without spikes in sugar. So if you have an even more moderate season than your typical coastal moderate season, you're going to elongate that period of what we call hang time, which Mm -hmm. is time for the, the grapes to develop on the vine. So 11 was, I think, a, maybe a record breaker as far as um, in my time, but I, I would say record breaker over the last 50 years as far as hang time is concerned. And so you end up with these extremely rich characters in the wine, and I think just a, a very uh, very dense root component. And that's what I, I see in all of the 2011s that we've produced. I happen to make this really rich, hearty, beautiful filet mignon chili. And wow. I, ha- I happen to have some fillets, and I decided, okay, I'm going to uh, cube them and make this really intensely flavored chili, lots of roasted garlic. And then what I like to do with my bowl of chili is I make a homemade brittle. I happen to make cashew brittle this time, and I do it in the microwave. It's amazing. <laughs> and I stick big, huge shards of brittle in, this bo- in the bowl of chili. 
I wow. happen to love Pinot Noir with sweet things, and I happen to think it's a beautiful pairing to rich red meat. And it was absolutely glorious. It brought out the flavor. There was actually some herbaceousness to the chili too, just fresh rosemary from the garden. And I wondered what you thought, or if you'd like to come for dinner. <laughs> that uh, yeah, my, well, I'm salivating now, so I'll try to speak through my television. Thank but. you. <laughs> that actually sounds absolutely amazing and a perfect pairing. I mean, it's you know, I, I agree with you. I think big, hearty red meats and hearty dishes in general can go with Pinot Noir as, as well as they can with a bigger wine like a cab. It was it was very complex, but it was I think a testament to Pinot Noir and to the Belle Gloss because it really stood up to this hearty chili. What do you eat when you're drinking your own wines? I've ran the gamut of, of different pairings, but um, I've kind of fallen into these more more per wine. So with the, let's say the Clark and Telephone Vineyard from Santa Maria Valley, it's really abundant in brown spice characters, you know, like cinnamon and cumin and uh, mm-hmm. allspice, those kinds of things. And it's really a unique wine from the Martini clone that, that we grow down there. And so I really like that with um, hearty Asian dishes, of all things, you know, like Peking duck or mm. um, something of that sort. A little, again, like you're talking about, a little bit of sweetness really just turns that on for me. Tell us if you would, leave us with this. We'd love to know about your next vintage and what we can expect um, for 2012. Our yields were back in line with, uh, with where they had been in the past years. An easier year, right? Definitely an easier year. Yes. Nature cooperated. So overall, um, we got... Everything that we wanted, where we wanted it, regarding you know pure, purely in a maturity standpoint, mm. everything tastes very good. Wines are all very dark and very voluptuous, just what we're looking for in the Pinot Noirs. Um, and we've done some pre-blends uh, as of now already, and, and things are really shaping up well. Well, we toast you and your future vintages, and we congratulate you as well because I think it must be extraordinary to be the winemaker that creates the nation's best-selling Pinot Noir. (laughs) Uh, I think that's pretty fabulous. There's no doubt you are a trailblazer and uh, primed to perpetuate and evolve the legacy of Napa Valley and to continue the family legacy as well. He is Joe Wagner, and you can find his best-selling Pinot Noirs under the label Belle Gloss and Miomi, along with the entire Wagner family of wine, Camus Vineyards, Cabernet Sauvignon, Mer Soleil, the Chardonnay at Bristol Farms, your favorite supermarket, your best wine shop online. Uh, it was a pleasure, Joe. And next time we're in Napa, we'll definitely knock on your door. And we thank you for sharing your tremendous passion. Well, please do. And thank you very much for having me. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen, along with Lana in your radio. This is your culinary culture and lifestyle show, a place for people who love to cook and love to eat. And those that love food and wine, of course, know Open Table. Open Table is the world's leading provider of online restaurant reservations. Did you know that since its inception, more than 400 million diners cumulatively have been seated through Open Table online reservations? That represents over $15 billion spent at partner restaurants. They seat approximately 10 million diners each month. 
And that 10 million number includes Lana and I. I am <laughs> quite a fan of Open Table, and we are delighted to bring perspective and insight to this truly extraordinary, free, instant, growing restaurant rave that is Open Table with the gentleman that joins us now. He's the vice president of consumer marketing at Open Table. He is Scott Jampol, and he joins us live. Good morning to you, Scott. Good morning. Glad to have you. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, pleasure. I'm glad to be Open Table fans. Um, I have followed Open Table for a lot of years, but for those that don't know, um, tell us if you would a little bit about how it was founded in 1998 and about the business model itself. It was founded in 1998, as you mentioned, by Chuck Templeton, our founder. Um, his wife was trying to make reservations for a dinner that she uh, was booking for her parents in town, mm-hmm. and she was finding it very difficult. Um, she was spending a lot of time calling restaurants. Some didn't answer the phone. Others were fully booked. And it led Chuck to really ask the question why there wasn't a better solution, one that would allow him to... Uh, find availability at all of these restaurants that he wanted to know about without having to pick up the phone and without the pain and suffering that his wife was experiencing. (laughs) I think we've all been there. And now we're just uh, accustomed to the convenience of it. The business model, I think, is very brilliant in that you could have gone the very high-tech route, but I really appreciate the ease of use. Yeah, well, we hope so. I mean, we want to make it very simple for diners to discover and book the perfect restaurant table, whether that's from their computer, on their new tablet, uh, or their smartphone. Talk, uh, if you would, about the mobile app, because the truth is that the mobile app is super simple, and I find myself making reservations probably closer to the date and time that I'm looking for a table because I rely on Open Table to get me in. Yeah, well, I think mobile certainly has become essential in all of diners' lives, right? People are on the go, they're not near a computer, or they're sitting in their office and they prefer to use their mobile device. So we have uh, a number of apps for all the different platforms that are out there that really, again, try to make it very simple for people to see where they can dine discover the perfect restaurant, and then book that reservation. Talk to us, if you would, too, about how you determine what restaurants find their way to open table or why my favorite restaurant might be there but someone else's is possibly missing. We work now with over 27,000 restaurants worldwide, and we provide them with hospitality solutions that uh, they put in their restaurants. So it's not just a website that lists availability. It allows them to replace the pen and paper reservation book with Mm -hmm. a computerized system that helps them run great shifts and provide high levels of personalized service to the guests that they're serving. So hopefully guests will come back more and more. And the cost is definitely based on the restaurant side. So it's free to book your reservations on open table, but they reap the benefits of being able to consistently book their tables to bring in more guests and to make it easier and certainly more convenient for diners to attain a reservation. Yeah. And a lot of restaurants look at us as a marketing vehicle, Hmm. a way for diners to discover their restaurant. You are not only in the U.S. I spent some time on opentable.com, maybe more so than I usually do the mobile app, Scott. And I found that you have a presence in Canada, Germany, Japan, Mexico, and the United Kingdom. And when you think about traveling abroad, which so many of us foodies do, it's very hard to get the reservation you want at the hot restaurant that you're dying to go to in London, like St. John. But if you know that you have that access to open table, you've made worldwide dining, to me, that much better. Yeah, I think there's uh, 
open table is very valuable when traveling. Um, mm-hmm. It's very anxious uh, for diners when they're outside of their dining area to figure out what's the perfect place for them to dine. And so being able to provide them with a tool like open table that helps them in their travel to find the restaurants that um, really fit their dining needs and, and that can provide them with that great night out that they're looking to have really is a, is a great benefit. And then, you know, the way that Open Table works is there's benefit for both the diners and for the restaurants. And so um, a restaurant being able to be found by someone traveling from another city mm-hmm. uh, because they're using Open Table is also a great benefit. Talk to us, if you would, about the most often booked restaurants or the most often booked cities per se Um, and the point system too because I will tell you I'm very proud to have just received a thousand point bonus Scott because (laughs) well uh, congratulations well thank you one of the benefits of using open table it is free for diners to use um, is that you earn points whenever you uh, book and then seat a reservation through the open table service Um, those points as you uh, continue to earn them will allow you to earn free dining certificates for any of our restaurants. So you mentioned you earned 1,000 points. So with 2,000 points, you'll be able to get a $20 dining check that is as simple as putting the $20 dining check into your check stuffer when the bill comes, and the restaurant will take that $20 off of your your bill. So it rewards you for dining out, and it hopefully gives you a reason to try new restaurants. Yeah, for sure. There's 1,000-point restaurants. Uh, tables that are listed at a thousand points, which is ten times the amount of points you normally get, which is a hundred points for our regular reservation. Yeah, that's I believe called incentive for free money. <laughs> that's yeah. right. And I never met anyone who didn't like free money. We received a thousand bonus points for actually sitting down to dine at the Palm, which Lana and I have a long list of making sure on our. You could call it a palm bucket list, probably, yes. Lana, uh, that we are going That's to dine one. in each of the locations around the world. And we sat down, in fact, during um, a very political time in the U.S. at the Washington, D.C. location to dine with lobbyists and congressmen. Um, and so it was it was a wonderful way to find one of our favorite restaurants in a city that we were visiting. Is D.C. or Chicago, where you call your hometown, or Los Angeles, any of those the most booked restaurants? cities? Yeah, I think we've been in all of those cities you mentioned for a long time. And uh, with the company being 15 years old now, uh, we stretch across the United States and North America, as you mentioned before. So we have restaurants pretty much wherever you're going to end up going. Um, However, we do have the most restaurants in the greater New York City area. Mm -hmm. And then Washington, D.C., Chicago, San Francisco, and Los Angeles kind of round out the next few. Are you I, searching the mobile app? I just signed up. I love it. it. And it gave me 232 restaurants near us. Okay. This is fabulous. Oh, I will <laughs> yeah, tell we you. we have about 1,500 <laughs> restaurants in the greater uh, Southern California area. So <sighs> hopefully if you if you take a look at our mobile app or on our website, you can take a look and see if your favorite restaurants are listed. Hopefully you'll find them. Wow. And Jamie, you could get a thousand points for going to Roy's in Newport Beach. Oh, I'm right there. Oh, definitely. (laughs) Tonight, for sure. Hopefully after this conversation, Scott, for those that might not have been in the know, you have a few more restaurant lovers perusing Open Table as well. There's some really wonderful content on OpenTable.com for food lovers alike. The 2013 annual winners of Most Romantic Restaurants are listed for you amongst lots of other great information. And I will say the mobile app, not only on my iPhone, but my iPad, has saved my life on more than one occasion 
in getting a last minute restaurant reservation, but it's been wonderful to be able to peruse the restaurants as well and plan um, for uh, a hot spot night out. And as you know, Scott, I am an open table lover. Thank you for bringing us perspective and for giving us an update on what I think is the growing, continuing technology when it comes to fabulous food and fine wine and food lovers everywhere. Well, thank you. We obviously love the power of the restaurant table as much as you both do. So appreciate your time Mm -hmm. and the ability to tell you a little bit about what we do. Pleasure. We look forward to following the continuing success of Open Table. He is the Vice President of Consumer Marketing at Open Table, Scott Jampole. And if you didn't know, Open Table is the world's leading provider of online restaurant reservations. So go there, opentable.com. Chef Jamie Gwen, along with Lana, delighted to have shared this hour of delicious conversation with you. We thank you for listening, for sharpening your cooking skills, and we hope you'll please your palate at chefjamie.com. You'll find recipes for menu planning for Passover and Easter and the recipe of the week, which is an apricot chicken curry. Super simple and made with our new In a Jam jams. You'll find me at the Manhattan Beach Bristol Farm Store from 11 to 2 today sharing jams. So if you're in the area, come out and taste and coming up next Sunday it's St. Patrick's Day what are you making Lana I know you love that emerald recipe Mm -hmm. we posted it on the website and something green and something green for sure I'll catch uh, hopefully you on Fox on Tuesday morning I'll be there sharing um, with Steve and Maria some top recipes for St. Patty's Day hoping to make your kitchen green with envy so check out Good Day LA on Tuesday morning on Fox 11 TV. Come cruise with us. The info is on the website. And join us next Sunday for Ari Tamor, Cack Young, keeping your heart healthy, and Charlie Palmer's rolling out his Bloody Mary brunch. You won't want to miss it. Chef Jamie Gwen along with Lana in your radio signing off. We thank you for listening and we hope you continue to eat well. The preceding program has been brought to you by Taste Bud Entertainment.